The following program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, is brought to you by our Mind, Body, Health, and Politics team, which consists of our producer, uh, Charlie Deist, our associate producer, Ali Kelly, our sound engineer, David Springer, and our editor, Florian Furen. This program has been coming to you for roughly 20 years. And the mission of the program is to enhance physical and psychological well-being and to encourage community. And what I mean when I say encourage community, I mean that I believe that human beings are friendly tribal animals. And when we live together in small enough groups where we know everyone by name or at least by face, we're basically very cooperative and collaborative animals. We are, very much so. But we must also be very mindful that there are a small percentage of us who are avaricious, greedy, dangerous predators. And that small group would rule us if they could. They would turn us back into subjects rather than the citizens that we are. So we must be ever mindful of how important it is to maintain our democracy and our republic, and to maintain a political awareness, even though it takes time, that many of us are short on. I remind you in the words of Thomas Jefferson, who said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, we have Siobhan Green, who's going to talk to us about hospice. We may be able to talk about CASA. Some of you may remember that we did a whole program on CASA with Cheryl Hildebrand. And also, we've been talking to an advocate of CASA, Norm Duval, for many years. For those of you who don't remember, CASA stands for Court-Appointed Special Advocates. And we'll find out more from Siobhan today. Welcome, Siobhan. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So what are we going to talk about first? We're going to talk about your hospice program first, or you want to talk about CASA first, or do you have something else that's even other on your agenda? Well, I think it's really important to talk about um, hospice and end of life and how our, when you talk about really encouraging community, um, it seems like that is an area that really beckons us to deepen community and really deepen understanding about end of life and how that process works and what what we need from one another. It's it's often not something that people are terribly comfortable talking about. And I guess in some ways, if I look at my careers, I've picked things that nobody's been comfortable talking about. I worked in inpatient psych for 12 or 15 years and then I worked with CASA with children who were abused and people don't want to think about that a whole lot. And here I am now working in the sphere of end of life care. And, you know, these are the, the topics that are incredibly relevant to all of us, yet difficult sometimes to lean into and to understand. All of us are going to go through, well, I shouldn't say all of us, almost all of us are going to go through an end of life process. The reason mm-hmm. I said I shouldn't say all of us is because some of us are going to come to a very dramatic end of life with no preparation whatsoever, right? You you could be 36 years old and suddenly killed. You don't have much end of life. But for the rest of us, it's an end of life process. Right. And when does the end of life process begin? 
Well, in my opinion, it begins all through life. I mean, we don't use at end of life as our language. We use through end of life because the moment we are born, we begin a trajectory of growth and learning and development. But at the same time, our bodies are always changing and they're always evolving. So to I, I, I almost think sometimes that's the biggest challenge that people have is that they think that there's sort of a start time when you have to start to think about it. You know, you get to 65 or 70. Well, maybe that's a start where you start thinking about it. But in reality, if we were able to think about it as the natural process that we all go through in life earlier in life, we may be better equipped as a society to have a deepen, deepened understanding. So, um, that, that's where I would say. So what you're saying is, with regard to the topic of at the at, how did you put it, rather than end of life? Well, we don't say services at end of life or, or preparation at end of life. We say yes. through end of life. Through end of life. Because it is a process. It is our process that goes on all through our lives. And, you know, the conclusion is death. We all know that. But the process of preparing for it and contemplating and being um, self-aware is a is an all-life process. It goes on all through our lives. So are you saying that this educational process about through end of life can start even in high school or college? So. Or Yes? Yeah. Because you know what? It's, if it starts in high school or college, there's a couple of major benefits. One is... Um, high school students, college students often see the death of a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or unfortunately parents or, or peers. And if there's no language for it, if there's no sense of we have to come together as a community to process this and understand it, it becomes even more difficult and more devastating. So by introducing this topic as at a young time in people's lives, I think it equips them better to be prepared for conversation, to be prepared to understand what grief means and, and know that grief is normal and not th something you need to get over. It, it's, I think there are so many complexities about this that if we don't ever talk about it as young people and, and as we go through our lives, we miss an opportunity to um, really be there for one another and understand that process. So I hear that you're advocating the importance of talking about this topic of mm -hmm. through the end of life. So let's say you and I have a conversation right now about through the end of life. And maybe, if you will, let's use me as an example, because I'm 83 years old. So certainly I'm a, a, a candidate I, I'm not a I'm not a high school candidate, but I'm a, a senior candidate for a discussion of end of life. We're, and I've never had one, so it's not never. like I'm coming. You've never I'm, had no, one. I've never had one, so I'm really coming to you not as a person sophisticated, even though I'm sophisticated in certain areas, as you probably know, and 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 quite sophisticated in some, but not sophisticated at all in others. And when mm -hmm. it comes to end of life. I, I, I don't even have an advanced directive. I have absolutely nothing, and I've never discussed my end of life with anybody. So how might we proceed? I'm going to be a subject. Tell me, why do you think you've never discussed it with anybody? Well, not to offend your good work, 
<laughs> but from uh, really, but my, I think I may have an unusual perspective. I think death and dying is an overrated topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that, I don't quite understand why I should spend time while while I'm living talking about my dying. Okay. Uh, my di- my dying's going to happen, and I'll be dead. So, but uh, but uh, but be, by meeting you, you've opened up a whole door for me. So I'm open to talking about it, but for the first time. Okay. So we start easy. We start slow. I think one of the things that's the most important thing is for you to define for yourself and in our conversation, what are the things that you would really hope could be a part of your dying process? Would there be a place Would there be, if you could have a final meal and be with certain people, who would those people be? Why would they be there? Where would you want this to take place? Well, what I would like, in answer to your question, is, um, I mean, at least one alternative would be to throw a party while I'm alive and then say goodbye to everybody and then leave and soon after the party die. Now. That would be possible if I had a terminal illness, because mm-hmm. I could, right? Because if I, yes. if I knew, if, say, they tell me I've got four months to live or three months to live, I could have the party and then take myself out earlier than the three months, and I could have a great party and say goodbye to everybody. That comes to mind as one option in answer to mm-hmm. your question. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us would like that to be the way it goes. Um, but the reality is that even... Even with a terminal illness that's clearly defined, the option to the to exercise the end of life option act, which is what you're referring to, where it's a medically induced end of life process, is a complicated one, and it, it, there are qualifications you have to have to kind of meet. So I, I I don't think you would be alone in being the kind of person, Richard, who says, I just want to have a party, say goodbye to everybody, and then go out. I mean, how many of us have heard about somebody who dies so peacefully in their sleep and say, whew, that's the way to go. I wish I was going to go that way. Yes, right? right. But, you know, we can all hope for that. But um, the other part of it is, if it doesn't happen, how can we support one another and understand. So maybe if you're getting less well in your health and you know things are moving along in toward the direction where you're not feeling well often, you're needing to see more doctors, you have diagnosed health issues, you don't necessarily know that you have two months or three months or eight months, but you know that things are starting to wind down. Part of the thing I would suggest would be the way to start would be to sit down with your with your physician and talk about what kind of medical care you want when you're getting really ill. What kind of, like, do you want a lot of interventions? Do you want CPR if you're frail and you're, you're getting to a place where your body's not working? Do you want to go back to the hospital if you're getting infections? Or do you want to have your pain minimized but not have to go in and have extensive medical treatment? You know, I think part of what our incredibly advanced medical world does is it does a great job of of providing medications and treatments and interventions to keep people alive. But at some point in time, do we want all of that? for our bodies or do we want to give our bodies a more peaceful quieter exit 
from this world, you know? So those are the kinds of reasons you have those discussions with your doctor so that whatever is important to you drives the process, not what's important to the medical world that thinks that curing illness is the always the end all be all and doing everything you possibly can. I mean, how often have we heard that expression? I want everything done. Well, does everybody want everything done? I would say probably not. So you have a great deal of experience with people in this situation. The, you're the CEO of a foundation. I think it's called the Hospice Living Foundation, or is he give, giving, giving. Hosp, Hospice Giving Foundation? Yeah. So be, before we go on with using me as a subject, which I very much appreciate, and I think it might be helpful for our listeners for us to continue doing that, let's take a sidebar and tell us about the Hospice Giving Foundation. That sounds like a good idea. So the Hospice Giving Foundation was formed 25 years ago. This is our 25th anniversary year. And um, prior to being a foundation, you know, every organization has sort of a, a tax ID number that identifies you. But in our earlier iteration of an organization, we were actually part of the first hospice provider in Monterey County. And we had a wonderful physician named Dr. Jerry Rubin, who really started this in the 70s with a very grassroots approach, got a little house, brought, um, was donated by a group, and they had a wonderful hospice there. They grew it. They wanted to go into a larger system. And at some point in time, it became clear that that entity as a bigger hospice provider could go in one direction. And the other direction we could go in was to create a foundation that provided resources and funding for all sorts of organizations along the spectrum of end of life care to be able to enrich services in our local community. And we are a very unique foundation. There are not very many like us in the country. There's a few that have some similarities, but this was this is a fully community funded and a community um, benefit um, foundation. Um, so what we do is we grant money out every year to hospice providers, um, palliative care programs, uh, grief and bereavement support, um, specialty med- specialty illnesses like Alzheimer's, or we've done work with AIDS organizations organizations that are really trying to help people who know they're very much at the end of life. Um, And then as well, we also fund programs that provide services and care for children with really, really serious illness. So, Um, So what all the programs that you fund have in common is they're all in some way dealing with end of life scenarios. Is that correct? That's correct. Whether it's children, whether it's AIDS, whether it's old people, they're all dealing with this one thing in common, which is there's something going on that's going to end the person's life within a fairly short period of time. Pretty much, yeah. 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 Now, you use two words that I'd like you to clarify for our listeners, just in case they don't know what those words mean. And one is palliative care, Mm -hmm. and the other is hospice itself. So kindly talk to us about those two words. Sure. Palliative care is a system, is an approach to medical care with a team of professionals when somebody has a very serious illness. And the term we really use very strongly in that discussion is the term serious illness. Somebody does not have to have a terminal diagnosis to receive palliative care. 
One of the challenges with a very complicated and serious illness is that oftentimes people are seeing different types of specialists for different aspects of their of their um, medical situation, and the care doesn't necessarily get really well coordinated. The palliative care team is brought in to that person's care team to help pull together all of the different aspects of the person's illness and develop with that person and their family, hopefully, if the family's involved, kind of a goal of care, like what do we want to see happen here? What kinds of services do you need to be comfortable at home? What kind of services do you need to support your in-home caregivers? How can we prepare everybody for what may lie ahead? And how can we really work with you through your illness to make sure that you're getting the care that you need, the care that you want, the care that's reasonable for the kind of medical situation you find yourself in. And sometimes the palliative care team is also kind of the voice of reason. If somebody is one of the people who's saying, give me everything, give me everything, give me everything, but everything doesn't make good medical sense and good clinical practice, then the palliative care team will talk about what really can help you now? What really are the medications or the interventions that can help you? It is curative medicine along with the practical team approach to helping somebody manage and deal with a very serious illness. It's- and it can go all the way through someone's end. Somebody can stay on palliative care through the through their death. I mean, they can. That's that's not uncommon. You were going to ask a question? Yes. You you mentioned the word cure. So are you saying occasionally or is it rarely that palliative care, which some of us associate with end of life care, but sometimes you're saying there's an there's a cure and it turns out it's not an end of life situation? Yeah, that can happen. I see, but not uh, not often. Not typically, but yeah. it certainly can happen. Now, differentiate for us palliative care from what hospice does, or is palliative care part of hospice? Um, let's differentiate it. I think they're very different, and I think it helps people to know that they're different. Thank you. Um, hospice is care for somebody who has a prognosis of six months or less to live. Prognosis meaning somebody could live eight or 10 or 12 months, but in general, based on the clinical presentation, the medical team determines that this person pretty much has about six months to live. And that person with their medical team agrees that they do not want curative interventions. So you're not going to be seeing somebody on a heart transplant transplant list if they're on hospice care. They're, they're going to get medications to keep their symptoms managed and to keep their pain managed, which is a very, very important piece of what hospice does, is manage somebody's pain and their day-to-day functioning. But they're not out to cure this person. Together, the family and the patient and the doctors and nurses have come to the understanding that this illness will very, very, very likely result in the death of this person. And to put more medicines and treatments and and interventions on it is not necessarily appropriate any longer. So hospice happens wherever somebody lives. If you live in your home and a hospice team comes to your home, 
helps you with things like medication management, um, getting a hospital, getting a bed for your home, things like that. They help you get the services you need. They're not there 24 seven, but they're a team that come in and help you through this process. And as importantly, they really help the family or loved ones understand the progression of the illness, what is happening and what they can expect when somebody's really, really getting into their final days, um, which is an amazing gift to give people that somebody can help you understand what this process is, because otherwise it's extremely frightening for people to just not know and to not feel like they have the time and the understanding. Is hospice available everywhere in the United States or only certain areas? Everywhere. Hospice is a Medicare benefit. So anybody who is sick has the opportunity to go on to hospice. If you're on Medicare, if you're on regular insurance, it's available to you. And quite frankly, if you have no insurance and no Medicare, hospice provides care for those individuals as well. Okay, now I need you to help me understand the difference between that hospice care and palliative care. Okay, couple of key factors. Palliative care has curative along with comfort care. Curative interventions along with comfort and team approach to goals of care. Hospice care does not have curative. Hospice care is comfort care, pain management, easing through the process of dying with somebody who's going to guide the family through that process. Okay, now it's real clear to me if if I or someone I know or people listening to this have a diagnose a prognosis of six months of or less, they're candidates for hospice. Mm-hmm. How does one know if they're a candidate for palliative care? If you get a diagnosis of um, a very serious illness, say you have a diagnosis of Parkinson's, right? People can live for 20, 30 years with Parkinson's, but it's a very serious illness and it's going to take its toll on your body. You've given, you've been receiving that diagnosis. That would be the time to bring in palliative medicine to be a part of your care team. You get a diagnosis of ALS. We all know ALS is going to end in someone dying, but you can also have ALS for quite some time before you're at that six-month point. And the idea would be to get a palliative care team in to help you manage that illness and get the services you need and make sure that your family's getting the services they need and all of that. Um, you know, cancer is a very, very serious illness. And people with cancer sometimes benefit from having a palliative care team because they can come in and help the family understand what's going to happen with this disease. How is it going to progress? You know, some people hear the word cancer and they instantaneously flip out and get terrified and frightened because they just don't know what to expect and they only think the worst. Well, the palliative care team can come in and really help that person understand what their cancer is about and what the prognosis is and work with them to help develop some goals of care and also when to shift if something goes worse, right? How to, how to know what the timing is. Um, I'll tell you personally, um, both my parents died in, on the East Coast, you know, many, many years ago. And my dad had everything. He had a bout of cancer. He had heart problems. He had dementia. He had all sorts of problems. And we spent his late years 
just trying to figure out what to do. Where do we go? What do we do? How do we manage this? And we didn't have a care team that was really trying to help us coordinate it all together. And it makes it very, very difficult for families. So a lot of these services that both palliative medicine and hospice provide, of course, they benefit the patient, but they also help to benefit the family or the loved one, the, the significant others around that person who are trying to make some sense out of what, what lies ahead of them. I think it's very clear now that if a person gets this prognosis, they've got six months or less, they can go to Google or the phone book if they still exist. They can look up hospice, make the call, make a connection, and they're going to get hospice help. If, on the other hand, they don't have a six-month prognosis, but they have something that's very challenging and serious to deal with, Mm -hmm. who do they call first to arrange for a palliative care team? What is their first and second phone call, or who is it to? Well, it's tricky, and I will even say the first one is tricky, too. You know, not too many of us are great self-advocates. We have to work hard at being an advocate for our own medical care. And in this day and age, that's even more important, as we all know. In the ideal world, that patient would be talking to their um, neurologist, say, let's go with the Parkinson's example. They'd be talking with their neurologist. And the neurologist would say, well, why don't we bring in the palliative care team and let's see what we can do to wrap some services around you. Or the patient would ask the doctor about it. I mean, that's where it gets tricky because sometimes we don't know what to advocate for ourselves. Um, I have had many a conversation with people who called me up and said, I don't know what to do. And I'd say, okay, this is what you ask for. You ask the, the doctors to get in touch with the palliative care team, bring them in, let them be a part of your care, your system of care. Um, you know, that's the ideal world. That's the way it happens. And part of what we do in our education is to try to educate the community and educate people when they don't have a diagnosis that they're facing, when they have life that they're facing and they're thinking about life. And if we talk to them and teach them a little bit more about options that they have for care, then if and when that diagnosis comes for them or someone they love, then they have some choices about what to advocate for and they can ask for some help. Um, and typically it is the, the physician who, I mean, you still have to have a physician's order to go onto hospice. So even if somebody called the local hospice program, they'd have to get that person assessed by usually a nurse goes in and does the assessment and then the doctor comes in and then they make a decision and they put the person on hospice. Um, but, you know, more and more there are hospice teams that are embedded in hospitals. And when somebody is really sick, then the the team that's working with that individual from that place, that's when they call in the hospice, the the palliative care team. You know, the the palliative care team is in the hospital working with them or they're in a clinic outside and they see somebody with really complex cardiology, cardiac problems or complex um, neurological problems or something like that. All of this is taking place within a family who are most likely frightened because one of their family members has gotten either a severe enough uh, diagnosis to call for palliative care or an even more severe diagnosis with a short prognosis that requires hospice. And everybody's like, what do we do? We're scared, et cetera, et cetera. And you say that first phone call is a difficult phone call. Is that first phone call to a hospice organization 
Or should that first phone call be, hopefully, if they have a doctor, but if they don't, who, they don't know who to call? Well, hopefully, if they're seeing a doctor, that doctor is going to be able to identify when it's the right time to call hospice. You know, and if somebody doesn't have a regular physician and, you know, there's, you know, millions of people in our country who don't have their own private internist or primary care provider, but they present themselves at the hospital and the ER or the urgent care and they're really, really sick and it's really evident that there's something going on. Once that workup is done and once they know what's going on with that person, most of the time they're going to be able to say to that individual, you know, there's just so much we can do in this circumstance. And we'd at least like you to talk to the people from the hospice program or talk to the people from the palliative care program, depending on the stage of the illness. You know, you can't force somebody to go on hospice. You can't convince them. They have to be willing to do this. And, you know, I have seen some incredible people who work in that field. And I know if that doctor sits down with that person and has a conversation with that person. It's going to be one that's really compassionate and really kind and gentle and trying to explain what's happening and reassuring that person that this team will be with them. Um, you know, and so we're fortunate that we have really wonderful people out there doing this kind of work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we as a society get a little less afraid of talking about it, maybe we'll be a little bit more able to access that service when we need it. Because at some point or another, we're all going to need help. Well, maybe you know? the, maybe this program that you're good enough to be talking on right now will help uh, you know, facilitate more conversations. Uh, we, we now know from you about the Hospice Giving Foundation, which is a funding organization which distributes money to various organizations that are dealing with people who are going through end of life. We know more about hospice and, and what they do and when they're called in. We know more about palliative care. Now let's come back from our sidebar to me as, as a, as a patient or a subject. Who okay. has reached? Who has reached out and for a dialogue? Because I've heard that it's important to talk about end of life, and I've never talked to anybody about it. I, uh, by the way, I've not only not talked to anybody about it, I haven't talked to anybody about it, and I had two life-threatening situations happen to me within the last year, which I'll be happy to tell you about. Please do. Well, um, I was uh, last year. I. I I turned 82. I'm 83 now. I've turned 83. But when I was 82, I was uh, very healthy, uh, taking no medicine. I'm an endurance athlete. I'm in great shape. And uh, I went in for a standard, my standard, uh, I'm a data collector because I, you know, as a clinical psychologist, I like data and I like data about myself. So I collect all kinds of information about myself my my PSA for my prostate, my blood tests, my lipid tests. I stay on top of all those things. I went in for my heart examination, and I was told that I was in heart failure. And I looked up heart failure, and I looked up the number that I was given, and it was extremely serious. I could be mm -hmm gone you know any any right. second because the uh my my heart was simply not pumping enough blood to keep the system going and within a week or two after that um i uh got a diagnosis of uh metastatic melanoma of the nodular kind mm -hmm. and i went in to give some blood at the hospital 
for further testing. And um, there was a trainee standing behind the person who was uh, uh, doing the intake. And she looks down at my diagnosis and I watched the blood drain out of her face. And I looked at her and I said, what just happened? You just look like you're in shock. And she hesitatingly said, well, I saw your diagnosis and my aunt got that diagnosis six weeks ago and she died yesterday. And so naturally I go home and look up on the Google with my wife. And sure enough, this um, this nodular form of, of metastatic melanoma is capable of of killing in six weeks. Mm-hmm. But I had this melanoma, as it turned out, for an entire year because it was misdiagnosed. My doctor mm-hmm. thought it was a basal cell, and he was spraying it with liquid nitrogen until at the end of the year, I said, you know, it's not going away. Maybe we better send it in for a biopsy. He sends it in for a biopsy, and it comes back with this metastatic melanoma. So there I was, dealing with two life-threatening diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And, well, it, it, it never occurred to me to, to reach out to either hospice or, or palliative care, and nobody reached out to me. And in fact, one of the things that I found interesting was that this great cardio cardiology team that I put together at UC Med, wonderful people, there wasn't one social worker or psychologist on their team to say to me, hey, how are you dealing with this diagnosis, right? right? And then with the cancer diagnosis, I also went to some high level people down at the medical school, uh, you know, for what, what do you do? What do you recommend that I do. And at no point with either of those diagnoses, did anyone ever reach out to me and say anything even close to, hey, how are you doing? Right. How's your wife doing? How is it for her to be having her husband get these two diagnoses? And that therein lies one of the biggest challenges we have. The medical, the cardiologist, the oncologist, you know, tremendous, wonderfully trained people, brilliant excellent physicians oftentimes are just so hardwired for the cure and they've got, you know, busy workloads and they're making sure this person gets the right interventions and the right curative treatment. But we forget about treating people as a really truly whole person with spiritual and, you know, psychological needs and relationships and all of that. And if we miss the spiritual relationship piece of an individual, that is a missed opportunity in the care that that person is going to receive. Because I'm sure your wife was just as flipped out as as other people's wives would be, or husbands would be, or partners, because they don't know the answers. And that is one of the reasons I believe so incredibly in palliative medicine, because one of the first things palliative medicine does is say, how are you doing? Let's take a look at what's going on and how are you doing? And in some ways, I have one doctor who, when she talks about palliative medicine, and she's just amazing, and she'll often say, you know, I think palliative medicine shouldn't be a specialty. This is just how we should treat people. This is just how we should care for people, period. We shouldn't have to call in specialty groups like a palliative medicine team to care for people. But We've gotten into a very specialized world of medicine, and there's a specialist for this and a specialist for that. And at least we do have a group of clinicians, and there are some wonderful palliative medicine people down in UC, at UCSF and all over the Bay Area. 
um, and in our community as well that are there to really help people through these things. And that was a missed opportunity, in my opinion, for you and your wife, for sure. Let's say we continue that dialogue because I'm a naive person about mm-hmm. any kind of dialogue regarding end of life. What, how do, what do we talk about next? Lead me on, please. So, Richard, tell me two things in life that are very important to you. My family and meaning. Okay. For your family, if you were dying, what would you want for them? I would want them to be able to celebrate my life and grieve in their own way if they need be, but mostly to celebrate my life and to celebrate the times and the memories that we have together, that we've had. Would you want them to be your caretakers? Not if I could help it. Would you want to be in your home with them? Yes, I'd want to, I'd much prefer to be in my home than anywhere else. So would you want to have um, a caregiver come and move into your home to help so that your family didn't have to be your caretaker caregivers? Well, it, it depends on my condition. If my wife and I could handle it, I would be happy just to have my wife and I handle it. If mm-hmm. we needed to bring in other people, um, I would. I, we we would bring in other people as as well as we could. Uh, I would not want to put the burden of taking care of me on the children. Okay. And for your wife, if you got to a point where you couldn't really tell her what you wanted, how would she know how to make the decisions that would honor you as a person, the man she loved, spent her life with? How would she know how to make that decision for you? If 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 I wasn't able, you mean like I became non-compass mentis? I, I mean, I, I my yeah, bur- I mean, if if you're if you were not as lucid as you had been, you know, um, if you were experiencing dementia or confusion, um, if you were very very agitated, if you were not just able to have a rational, reasonable conversation and say to your doctor, this is what I'd like next, or this med- this is of the choices of interventions that you have for me, this is what I'd like. So you got to a place where you couldn't really speak for yourself. And that doesn't mean you're just flat out in a coma. I mean, there's all variations along the path there. How would she know what you wanted? Well, I listened carefully to what you said. And when you said things like, I was no longer lucid, or no longer could maintain a normal conversation. If I had my druthers, I would hope that I had the wisdom to take myself out before I, right before, as I was lapsing into that stage. In other words, mm-hmm. I could see it coming. The doctors told me it was coming. There's no doubt it's coming. And I want to say goodbye before I'm a burden on anybody else to take care of a vegetable. Yeah. And that's, that's a really, I mean, that's a, a complicated, not uncommon thought, and yet not everybody has access to the kinds of medications or things that they would need to do that. And, you know, let's face it, it's not legal. Like whether legal is important or not here, I don't know, but it's not legal. And is that burden on your wife? How do you, how do you come to that decision? And I'm not asking you to tell me the answer to it now. I'm just saying that if that's what you want, you and your wife need to really talk that through well in advance of when that decision needs to be made. Well, I guess and you I need to know how that would go. I guess I erred when I said I haven't talked about this topic at all. Yes, I have. There is one thing I have discussed with my wife and I think my mm-hmm. family know it as well on this topic. 
which is I have the medication I need to take myself out. I'm not going to go looking for, you know, legal blah, 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 and go through a whole process. That's too time consuming, inconvenient, and I don't want the, that whole burden on everybody. So right. I decided, I decided literally 60 years ago when I lost my best friend because he took himself out. He had, he, he was very young. He had glomerulonephritis. It was very early in the days of dialysis. He got to the point where life was not worth living, and he took himself out with pills. And when he did that, and I was 21 years old, I said to myself, I'm going to make sure that I have those kind of pills, and I'm going to keep them with me for the rest of my life. So if I ever get in a position like that, I'll be able to do that without any fanfare. So, you know... So that, so that question you asked me earlier about when do we start talking and thinking about this? Yeah. 60 years ago, right? I really, I actually talked about it 60, I thought about it 60, you're absolutely right. I hadn't quite thought about that when I, I said the other thing. So that's the and, answer. And, and the other thing is not everybody is as, and I will say brave, as brave as you to be willing to do that. People don't always feel like that's something that's within their their ability to do. People don't feel like it's within their ability to do from a spiritual and a religious perspective in some ways. So this is why people have to have those conversations. Like, what does it look like for your family when you can't make those decisions? If you're not the kind of person who has really made come to very much at peace with the idea that if you're not able to live a functional life and you're really deteriorating, that you're going to end your life. You know, there's an awful lot of people who maybe think that, but they have no wherewithal with which to do it. So how do they manage that process? And, you know, what is what are the alternatives for them? What is palliative sedation? How does that fit in? What are the ways that somebody could get that kind of a peaceful ending to their life and not be a tremendous burden on their families? That is a conversation that needs to be deeply explored and with the, kind, the medical community who really understands it. You know, there's, there's a lot of people, there's, you know, there's some people in the medical community who don't even believe in the end of life option act. Um, there's some people who completely believe in it and think it's a wonderful opportunity that we have finally passed this law in California that gives people the, uh, the agency over themselves to be able to make that decision and to, to follow that path. Um, but this is a great example of why we have to have these conversations well in advance. And also, if I may add, there's also a significant percentage of the population who don't believe that when we do what's called dying, that that's the end of life. Mm-hmm. They believe that there's another something there's another coming life. right after right. that. In fact, I remember asking a priest one time, a Catholic priest, I said, you know, you believe that there's something after this form of living and he mm-hmm. said, yes, of course. And I said, well, then why do you call last rites extreme unction? Because what it should be called is extreme transition. You're not really right. leaving. You're just moving into another form of life. And for those people, really, there isn't, it isn't end of life, is it? It's, it's right. a transition of life. Right. I mean, there's a lot of deeply held religious beliefs that there is something else that happens in our lives. But at some point, we're not part of this physical world, but we're part of a different world. And so, but those are 
those are some of the other reasons why if you don't have a conversation with those you love and those you care about and those who are involved in your care about what you want, chances are you're going to get more interventions than you really want. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're going to get somebody whisking you off to an emergency room when you're having a stroke and you're really, your body is failing in so many ways. You know, I, I've had conversations with people who said, I don't know what else to do. And the reason they don't know what else to do is because the person that they care so much about had so many medical complications in their body was shutting down and their body was failing. And they didn't have anybody guiding them through that process until after the conversation, they got connected with somebody from hospice and somebody was there to help them go through that process and understand how that process worked. Um, So we owe it to each other in our lives to give each other this gift of a conversation, to give each other time to sit together and talk it through. And my family and I, there's there's a card game. It's really actually a remarkable tool. It's called Go Wish. And I'll mail you a packet after the call. Please. Um, thank you. And it's a card game that like 36 or so different cards. And it says something on each card, like to to be kept clean, to have a sense of humor, to be at peace with God, to not be a burden on my children. There's a whole there's 36 different choices. And when you play the card game, you sort out what's most important to you. And then you talk about it as a group. So one year at Thanksgiving, my husband and I and our daughter and son and their partners sat and we played the game and we had this conversation. And it was it was just, you know, it had moments where it was, you know, typical with my family, a little irreverent. And, you know, everybody got a good couple of laughs out of it. And then there were moments where people had a few tears in their eyes. And I remember my daughter saying, so... It, it'll be messy and that sometimes, and that's okay. Kind of giving permission to not have all the answers and giving permission to have the process be something that you have to really just think about and work through together. Um, but it, it's, it's an interesting tool because it's very simple language. And yet it sparks a conversation and a discussion that, um, that might be where I would have started with if I had a deck of cards and we were sitting in the room together. <laughs> Well, you've answered a question that I was going to ask you, because our family is coming for Thanksgiving, and I was going to ask you whether it would be appropriate for me to bring up this topic. And then I realized the difficulty, one of the many difficulties that you're dealing with, with with people like myself who don't know about this topic, which is the first thing I thought about was, oh, I bring up death and dying at Thanksgiving. It's going to put a damper on the who they why would they want to come? I got a daughter coming all the way from New York. She wants to talk about my dying. No, she wants to talk about my living. And and what a terrible thing. But then when you put it in terms of a card game and that you did it yourself with your family, I'm thinking, well, maybe if you can get that card game here by Wednesday or Thursday, <laughs> I'll, I'll play it with them because I'm open. I, you know, I believe in radical transparency and I like to say things, you know, just right out in the open. But on the other hand, I don't want to be a, a wet blanket on a whole bunch of lovely family well, members. And, and we didn't do it on Thanksgiving. Huh? <laughs> you know, oh, we did it on Saturday night. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we gave it a day, you know. We, we didn't want to mix turkey with all of that. So, Fair you know, enough. Okay, we well, everything in life. Okay, that that is very true, and they're going to be here for enough days, so I could so how do many it. Of you, how many of you are there? Because each person has their own deck. So 
I need to know uh, how oh, many to send you. Well, there's Serana and Aaron coming from Haines, Alaska. Eva Cheska's coming from New York. And Jules and Whitney coming from uh, Aptos. So there's five. And the two of us, Jolie and myself, are seven without seven. the baby. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. We won't get one for the baby, but I'll send you no. seven. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's it's really a it's a it's an interesting tool. It really gives you some opportunity and um, to make the dialogue. So and there were things that were said that were so interesting of things that were important for our kids looking at this process for themselves that were really different than my husband and I. And I think it has to do with age and place in life and all of those things. So it but it's 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 a good tool. I'll send them to you. Good now. You mentioned before we started this wonderful interview that I'm learning so much from that you needed to go by 3.30 and we've got about five minutes left for me to be respectful of your time. So this is my next question. If, If we pause right now and I say to you, just stop and think that if we were to end the interview at this right now and then five minutes from now, you think of something, oh, I wish I would have said that. Tell me if there's something right now that you wish you would have said that we didn't cover on this important topic of end of life. And I can think of one thing right away that I'd like to spend some time on. Maybe we'll have to have you back. And that is, I've been working in the field of uh, of uh, psychedelic medicine for mm-hmm. many years, as you know. Um, and I want to hear from you, is there a place for psychedelics in end of life? We know that Aldous Huxley took LSD as he was going out. That's a very famous story, of course. Mm-hmm. But what about end of life? Do we have a few minutes to discuss that? Sure, we do. So back in 2020 or 21, I forget what year by now because it's all gotten so muddy, we did a, an all the, a two-day symposium on psychedelic use of psychedelic medicine at end of life. And we had lots of the, the big guys in on the conversation and talking about it. And a lot of what... The focus was is on using these medications for um, for anxiety, depression, for um, kind of resetting the brain for some healing and bringing people into a more peaceful space um, during their dying process. It's not necessarily as they're dying, but in the end of life months and you know time leading up to it. So. I think there's some wonderful, wonderful information out there and wonderful resources on how psychedelic medication can ease suffering, because that's a lot of what this is about, is about easing suffering and giving somebody a chance to heal their mind and prepare their body for the time that's coming ahead of them. Well, there are four places in the United States that have made psychedelics or some some psychedelics legal, and Mm -hmm. that is the city of San Francisco the city of uh, Oakland, California, uh, Denver, Colorado, and I believe the state of Oregon. And in, mm. uh, they've made things that come out of the ground legal, for sure. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that people could go to one of those four places and get end-of-life treatment with psychedelics. Yes. And I'm, it could be that places are going to start forming to offer that service. Do you- and I, I would not be surprised at all. And I think it's, it's growing in understanding and acceptance that there is some real, um, there is really a place in the medicine world for this kind of medicine. It's unfortunate 
that the earlier work that was done just got it side railed into the counterculture and all of that. Now, this symposium that you referenced back in two, uh, 2021. Yeah, I guess on- we did it in 21. We were going to do it in 20 in person, and then we did it virtually in 21. <laughs> okay. Were there recordings made? Could you reference me and get me? Are there ways I could access any of that information? I don't think the presenters allowed us to keep long-term recordings. I think we only had them for a short window of time for people who had registered. But let me look in my files and look in my information and see if I have something okay. that I could send you. Yeah, anything that you have on end of life and psychedelics that you'd be willing to share with me, I'd very much appreciate. Sure, sure. So anything you'd like to add before we come to a conclusion for today? I was thinking about this in anticipation of this call. And, you know, we talk about acceptance of end of life. And part of what people don't want to see is their dependence on other people and burdening other people. And it's interesting, if we look at life in a very large picture, as we begin life, we are 100% dependent on other people. And the people that care for babies and infants find enormous gratifying, it's very gratifying and sometimes frustrating and tiresome. But in the larger pers- larger picture, it's usually looked at as a very gratifying time because you've helped this being usher through being completely helpless through to being a capable child and so on and so forth. Yet we, in some ways, I think as a society, we are, we take that privilege away from people as we're going down in the other direction. We say, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to have them see me like this. I don't want somebody to have to help feed me or help bathe me or clothe me. And we don't, see it as the act of love that it is. And I would love for people to think of it more, that it's not necessarily a burden, but an act of love to let somebody who has been so close and near and dear to you, somebody you love, care for you during your final days and not feel like it's a burden. So that's where I'll leave you. That's beautifully said. I want to just complete one thing that I said to you, because I know you're such a caring person, and that is the uh, cancer was uh, taken out of my body, and then testing was done. And it turned out that during that year that I had the cancer, there was no metastasis whatsoever. And so I asked the surgeon who, t- who did the study on me and cut me open and did you know biopsy. I said, mm-hmm. how is it that I lived a whole year with this dangerous, <laughs> dangerous metastatic melanoma that kills in six weeks? How come I'm still here? And he said, your body built a capsule around the melanoma and didn't allow it to move for the entire time. Wow. So that was, that, was the, that was the story on the cancer. And on the I'm heart, hear that. well, thank you. And then on my failing heart, um, instead of following what I was told to do, which is to cut back on my exercise program, uh, I doubled my exercise program. And I started working out seven days a week for 60 minutes. And I made my nutritional plan even more stringent. I was also already over 90% vegan plant-based, and I got even more in that mm-hmm. direction. 
And I wasn't much of an alcohol imbiber, but I cut out, I went down to almost zero alcohol and worked on my mental state. And the next time I was tested, my heart was back to normal. And then six months after that, I was tested again, and it was still normal. And what I'm told is that the heart can do something called remodeling. And it can remodel into a normal heart after it has been in a failing heart. But it's not a very common thing, but it does happen. So now I'm back to happy, healthy heart and no cancer. So I thought I'd complete that part of the story for you. But that but that's, doesn't mean that everything you said today isn't being taken extremely serious because I'm now going to open up this conversation that you taught me and taught us, the listeners, is so important for us all to have. And I thank you for that. Well, and I thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk with you about it. And I'm very glad to hear that your body took such good care of you. <laughs> yeah, it sure did. And thank you. And thank you all, dear listeners, for sharing in this wonderful interview today. Please go to our website for Mind, Body, Health and Politics. The archives will show you lots of other programs that you can watch. You may want to subscribe and become part of the Mind, Body, Health and Politics community. Otherwise, I look forward to next time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 